Hear me, my son. I alone will tell you the truth. If Doronagi claimed you as an ally, you'll never leave Japan alive. Welcome to Shogun, the official podcast. My name is Emily Yoshida, and I was a writer on the series. And after each episode, I'll be diving deeper into the different elements that went into making Shogun with co-creators Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo, along with the cast and crew that brought this story to life. This week, we're talking about everything that happens in episode two. So be sure to watch the show before listening because there are spoilers ahead. Okay, everybody caught up? On the podcast today, I'll hear about what Blackthorn sees in Yabushige from actor Cosmo Jarvis. We'll learn why some characters' names in the original book had to be changed for the show from producer Eriko Miyagawa. And director Jonathan Van Tulliken tells us why he thinks Ishido is actually a sympathetic villain. But first, episode two introduces us to the many conflicts going on inside and outside Japan as we open our story. We have almost 200 years that pass of civil infighting. Basically, just all these warlords who were very powerful squabbling over who was going to be the guy. This is Shogun executive producer and co-creator Rachel Kondo. And when she came aboard this project, it was her first time reading James Clavell's novel. We spent a couple of weeks, you know, reading eight hours a day. And it was, you know, it might sound long and tedious, but it was truly a page-turner with unforgettable characters. We didn't really know what we were going to go into it with, but kind of made our way. So in adapting the show, obviously there was this huge language component of it, and we we were working really, really hard to make sure that the script was going to be accurate when we translated it from English and sort of into a period language for the actors to read. And this is obviously a very complicated process, and the dialogue could go through some real changes by the time it was spoken by the actors. So were there any cases you remember where the translation actually really changed what was said on the show? Well, one instance that comes to mind is at the end of episode one, when Tornaga is discussing with Marika what is about to happen. He has come across this barbarian ship, and he'd like her to translate for him. And they get to this point in the conversation where he says to her, I need to know, is this going to conflict with your faith mm-hmm. to be, you know, basically translating for a heretic? And she says to him, and the, what was in the script was, she says to Tornaga, it would be a problem if I was only one thing. Mm-hmm. And how that came, it went to the Japanese, and how that was performed by the great Anna Sawai was that it came back, I have more than one heart. Mm. And I thought that that was a beautiful, much more spiritually accurate way to put it. And so we stuck with it. We're talking about episode two this week. And this episode really kind of starts to get into the meat of both the political situation that Blackthorn has found himself in after washing up ashore in Japan and kind of the dynamics between all of these different regions. So can you go into a little more detail about what kind of sets Ishido and Toronaga at odds with each other? So I think one of my favorite sequences of episode two is Ishido's morning routine. You know, it's a small little snippet that we kind of run through what he goes through in private, but it also kind of 
adds up to what exactly bugs Ishido about Tornaga. I mean, he looks at his battle armor in the beginning, and then at the end of that sequence, he's looking to the Taiko's battle armor, which is amazing, right? Yeah. And Ishido's battle armor, it's fine. It's like functional, but not that impressive. And I think he's just, you know, he feels the weight of that bureaucrat's stamp as the difference between them. And, you know, I think that Toronaga, who was born Minowara, you know, it's a legendary, almost mythological family clan uh, who ruled for many, many years. It's going to just rankle someone like Ishido because Toronaga was that kind of guy who he's born a leader, whereas Ishido mm-hmm. has to become one. So he he's going to have that chip on his shoulder, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think some people might be surprised to know that Ishido, both the character in the series and the real life Ishida, was a peasant. He Mm -hmm. did not grow up as a samurai noble person and kind of, which is the same as the Taiko, right, too? Yeah, the Taiko also basically clawed his way into power. And I think that um, that's a huge difference between how they did that versus someone like Toronaga, who he is a person of legend in that society. And um, I think it goes into his style of not ruling, but Toronaga is a strategist, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the Ashidos of the world and the Taikos of the world, they would fight tooth and nail and take what they want and claim for themselves what they feel is their due, but someone like Toronaga has a completely different strategy. Yeah. Um, did you have any favorite moments from this episode? <laughs> um, or, or, you know, fun memories from the production of it? Well, I guess that opening scene would probably be my favorite moment, simply because immediately you're just drawn into this beautifully lit scene and this mm-hmm. this decadence. It's just visually decadent. And our director, Jonathan Van Tulliken, I think did a great job of bringing us into this moment that visually looks so different from anything we've ever seen. Uh, you can hear the chanting in the background. And then we kind of bring it down to a, almost a child's level and we watch a very human thing pass before us. And so, yeah, I would say that was my favorite of the of the episode. Yeah, I I love that scene. And I think it's so nice because oftentimes Toronaga, especially in this first part of the story, can seem so distant and calculating and kind mm-hmm. of this unreadable person. But, you know, his his friendship with the Taiko was real. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can really see that in that moment. Oh, and that the other great thing about that scene is how it establishes the tensions between Toronaga and Ochiba. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> those dagger eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, um, can I say one quick thing? Because I, I sure. really, it's this one moment in the episode that someone might easily miss in which um, Mariko and Blackthorn are discussing bathing. And in the background, you see Setsu, who is mm. Mariko's lady-in-waiting. And she basically glides across the floor in this she was like a liquid, you know, she just <laughs> glides across across the floor and she just moves in this way that is so stunning because you, you can't fake that kind of stuff. You know, she's, I mean, I tried it myself. I was not able to even bow, you know, the way that they yeah. bow and to do that whole fluid moment or yeah. movement all at once was, I think, something to point out. So, yeah, 
yeah, the movement training is something that once you know about it, you really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. And that specific person who played Setsu, Akiko Kobayashi, she was one of the Shosa instructors. Oh, right. And yeah. she exists like that in real life. I mean, she would glide in and out of the production office and you can't help but <laughs> you can't help but marvel. Caught in the center of the political storm is John Blackthorne, the pilot who charted a course around the world and washed up on the shores of Japan. My dad's a, he's a celestial navigator. He's a seaman. And he tried to explain how celestial navigation works. And my mathematics is pretty substandard. So a lot of that went over my head. Playing the role of Blackthorne is actor Cosmo Jarvis. But I did learn that the planet was not a sphere. It was an oblate spheroid, which means it's not a perfect sphere, which I, d I didn't know. To embody the character, Cosmo looked to better understand the pilot-slash-pirate Blackthorn. You know, at the time, I was sort of trying to look at the practical aspects of what his occupation entailed, like being a pilot, and looked into the state of the Protestants and Catholics at the time and how the Pope allocated land. So episode two kind of starts off with this first meeting between Toranaga and Blackthorn. It's such an interesting scene, both in terms of, you know, these are going to be our two characters. This is kind of their first impression of each other, but also in terms of the way the translation works in it. I mean, you know, they can't understand each other, but there is this, you know, something is happening there in that scene. What do you think that Blackthorn sees in Toranaga in that first meeting? I think he straight away sees that Toranaga is a force to be reckoned with. I think Hiro really wears Toranaga very naturally and thickly, and he's a presence in and of himself. And so when all of that happened, there was nothing else to inform any of that from the point of view of the person whose job it was to portray Blackthorn. It felt like a very long period of sussing each other out. We did a lot of that. And finding nonverbal common ground through other forms of communication like body language and the sincerity of the decorum that Blackthorn might have, or lack of decorum in some cases, that Blackthorn right. would have displayed toward him. I mean, it's such a delicate relationship, I think it must have been to act between you two and to grow over the course of the series. Was there anything you guys did on set, you know, just off camera to kind of maintain that dynamic or build that relationship? We didn't spend a lot of time chit-chatting, mm -hmm. which I think was very good because it meant that when we got to those kind of introductory scenes between Toranaga and Blackthorn, the process of being in each other's company as characters began to take shape naturally as it would with all of the sort of mysticism of being strangers that we had anyway. And mm -hmm. that worked out well. So Blackthorn experiences some serious whiplash in this episode. I mean, first he's dragged into Toranaga's court, basically like one of the most powerful men in Japan. And then from there, he's tossed into this filthy prison in Osaka. It's just a lot. So what was it like to kind of be taken from one extreme to the other while you're shooting this episode? I mean, initially when we got to the Father Domingo scene, I was finding it difficult to reconcile the fact that in the book, he spends a huge amount of time in this prison. 
it was quite hard to nail down the amount of fictional time that he was supposed to have been there in this adaptation. In the book, the sheer misery of the conditions in that prison have a profound effect on him, and they have a profound effect on how he relates to Father Domingo. The whole prison could almost just be a book in the book. <laughs> I mean, it, it does make you think about the fact, like in episode one, he spent a lot of time in a pit getting fish guts dumped on him. Yes. You know, there's a lot of brutality toward Blackthorn and his men in the first couple episodes. It does feel like it maybe negatively impacts Blackthorn's idea of, you know, this culture. Yes, and I think that those parts in particular must have come from James Clavell's experience as a prisoner of war. I only found out that he was a prisoner of war afterwards, and then it made sense about how those particular parts were so brutally realized but domingo seemed like a nice chap so <laughs> and i think he is one of the few truly helpful and sort of semi-caring presences that blackthorn comes across in those early days but then he gets removed from the prison quite quickly anyway and on to the next yeah. problem yeah so he's eventually rescued by Yabushige. And the relationship between Blackthorn and, and Yabushige is just so rich. How do you see their relationship and how it grows over the series? What do they see in, in each other? They both recognize that the other one is sort of fighting as hard as the other one. Not fighting anything in particular, but just in a fight with their own life, I think. And it's obvious by the situations that they both find themselves in and the sort of renegade quality of Yabushige, I think Blackthorn finds that fairly relatable because, again, everything is sort of translinguistic or, or nonverbal, all their communication, but it's very prevalent with Yabushige that there's so much fight in him and so much sort of enigmatic kind of... Well, it's like he's he's a villain that can't be a villain because you sh nobody should like a villain that much as right. much as you yeah. like Yabushige. And I think that's yeah. what happens to Blackthorn. And I think that on the cliff, the communication between them that transcends anything that could ever be put into words, it's that. There's something yeah. just very human about him. And there's something about the way that Yabushige kind of toys with Blackthorn that I think Blackthorn recognizes from his own attitude to, towards Catholics. And yeah. I think he kind of can't help but respect the fact that Yabushige gives him the same kind of shit for being a foreign barbarian and making him bark like a dog and, or, or, you know, just call himself a dog <laughs> and these kinds of things. And I think that that in some kind of beautifully messed up way, their worst traits bring them together. What was the kind of off-screen relationship like with Asano? I heard there was a lot of improv. There was. <laughs> yes, there was at times. We were sort of always trying to find stuff in between the written lines, yeah. which is something I wasn't used to. But Tadanobu kind of, he kind of sucks you in. <laughs> He's uh, the impro improvised kind of noises that he makes in between words convey more in some cases than any line ever could and uh, yeah. it was it was great i loved working with him he's amazing it must have been kind of a meta experience to both be playing this character who's one of the only people who doesn't speak japanese in the story but at the same time also be on a set where you're one of the only actors who doesn't speak japanese i was just wondering if that real life experience that you were experiencing every day did that 
inform your understanding of what Blackthorn was going through? One of the things that I noticed from being on set is if somebody was translating something in Japanese to a Japanese person that I had said in English, the only thing that I could really do to gauge how what I said might have been penetrating the person's brain that I was saying it to was the expression on their face. And it was very much the same with this, because you, you, you could kind of gauge the quality of your translator by the look on yeah. the person's face that you were speaking to. Shogun's bilingual production mirrors the complex, layered communication of the characters in the story. From poetry to translations to delicate wordplay, the power of language hangs over all the events unfolding in Osaka. In the middle of it all is Blackthorn, at the mercy of those who can communicate for him. The Japanese language is not easily translated into English. Among the challenges is that courtesy and manners are imbued into speaking in a way that has no direct English equivalent. An early European missionary in Japan once wrote, it is impossible to learn the language without, at the same time, learning to speak with dignity and respect. The art of proper respect is a delicate matter. In Japanese, prefixes and honorifics are added to denote familiarity, superiority, and inferiority. When referring to an object that belonged to someone of a higher station, a samurai would start with the prefix o, go, or on. For instance, yashiki, or mansion, becomes o yashiki when a samurai refers to his lord's residence. Japanese also uses honorifics on people's names to denote their standing. In contemporary Japanese, you may hear people use san at the end of a name to signal respect which is more or less equivalent to Mr., Mrs., or Miss. During the Sengoku period, the more formal Sama was used, which is why we often hear the name Toronaga-sama on the show. A lack of any honorific to just say Toronaga either indicated extreme familiarity or contempt. There are so many ways to say one thing in one language, and then, you know, there's no such thing as direct translations. Never a dull moment. <laughs> This is producer Eriko Miyagawa, whose job it was to oversee the use of Japanese language throughout the show. You know, our goal was to make it a historically authentic show. So I think um, in terms of language and dialogue front, I think what we really focused on pushing the authenticity of it, but, you know, also making sure that modern audience can find it accessible. So much of the show revolves around a character who's entirely Japanese-speaking, Lord Toronaga. And the actor who plays him, Hiroyuki Sanada, was also a producer on the show. So I was wondering, I mean, was he like an on-set producer? Like, what was he doing on the set to kind of ensure this accuracy? Yeah, um, it's sort of like, what is he not doing? <laughs> He's <laughs> wears so many hats. I still remember... Like the day one, he shows up in sort of all black. He he looks like he could be in a grip department, you know, <laughs> black <laughs> tracksuit and, you know, baseball cap. And it's COVID, so everybody's masked up. And <laughs> and so nobody knew who he was. And, <laughs> you know, he's kind of wandering around, getting coffee from <laughs> Crafty and listening to all the dialogues, fixing background if they're walking funny or, you know, carrying sword in the wrong way. He's like getting in there. There's so much in 
to about language and about, you know, getting into kind of these very um, specific titles and the way that people speak to each other and show respect to one another. Can you explain some for viewers who are kind of all coming to this for the first time? Like, what are all these different titles that we're hearing and, and what do they mean? It's considered rude to address somebody just by their names. Like hero in English, I would call him hero, but in Japanese, I would always call him Sanada-san. And then Dono, which is still very respectful, but slightly more equal. Mm -hmm. So you would notice, you know, Ishido addressing Kiyama as Kiyama Dono or mm. Sugiyama Dono right. because they're sort of colleagues. Sometimes they switch around depending on who's talking to who and, you know, what the relationship is. And it's, it's tricky. It's never, um, there are a lot of gray areas to that as well. So even for us, like on set, we're like, wait, <laughs> should it be Tono or should it be? Right. We're constantly adjusting and making decisions. You know, even like simple word like I, there could be multiple ways to say it depending on your class or gender or, you know, who yeah. you're talking to. I was going to ask about that because I just always notice what people are referring to themselves as. And I don't know, you know, and maybe this is more of a historical thing, but a lot more of the men say watakushi than like boku. Nobody, like people aren't saying. Oh, yeah. Boku is, boku is modern. Like samurai uh, would address oneself as sesha, sesha or soregashi. Kind of all depends on the setting and, you know, the context. So, yeah, it's always like when, you know, on set when... Justin or actors have requests to, you know, for last minute dialogue change or, you know, request to improvise. And we're like, oh. <laughs> give me one minute. <laughs> but luckily, Hero has such a great handle of he's done so many period shows. So he has very good handle of these type of language. So readers of Clavel's books and people who've seen the miniseries before will notice that almost none of the names are the same besides our three leads. They've all been changed. And that was, a, I think that was a very big creative decision on the part of the show for, for Justin and Rachel. Can you kind of explain how some of those original names, like Fujiko, for example, what were the things that needed to be changed about the names and how would a period accurate Sengoku person be addressed? Yeah, that is a big decision, but I think it was the right decision ultimately, because with due respect, a lot of the names in the novel were too modern. Or sometimes it's names of a place, or sometimes it's a last name is used as a first name. So I think it's important that all the names feel historically authentic while respecting the novel, right? So Fujiko is Fuji. Because Ko, which is, I mean, that's a very common ending for a woman's name now, but that was not really a kind of format for a name. Not at that time. It's, it's not completely out of the question and and also Mariko being so such an iconic part of the novel I think I think it was good to keep At the time of our story Mariko Toranaga and all of the Japanese characters in Shogun have been living in a period of constant war There is a sort of simmering tension running through the entire piece where we're not sure if any of our lead characters might die This is episode 2 director Jonathan Van Tulliken Everyone's trying to be inscrutable and everyone's trying to also read what everyone else is thinking. And of course, this is a world where death, death is happening on a regular basis at this moment in time, that it was, there was a lot of war, there was a lot of civil unrest. And so I think we were always trying to find that and find moments of that in the background. In the prison scene, we put an execution happening in episode two, and that wasn't originally scripted, but it felt important to show to Blackthorn in that moment that death is present, death is near. 
Um, and the same with the beheading in the village in episode one. And then on the other side of just the sort of historical side of things, I think because it was a period of substantial change and sort of sitting between two different periods, we really spent a lot of time trying to speak to experts about, you know, what this exact period was like. Yeah, I mean, another huge aspect of the period is that it's when you have the Portuguese influence there, you have the Christians coming in. So I just wanted to, you know, get in a little bit of that, those sort of two worlds colliding. What I really had taken away from the novel and when I read Justin and Rachel's first script was that we are the savages, that we are the barbarians. And I think when we wanted to depict the Christians and depict the Portuguese and the Jesuits, we really wanted to show the Japanese world as light and open and embracing nature and the food, you know, the cleanliness of the food. And I think when we showed the Jesuits, what we wanted to show was that actually it's dark and it's fetid and they're eating greasy meat. And we had the dog licking hands, uh, the food off the priest's hands and things, something that would just be abhorrent, you know, which actually is, it is totally disgusting. And so I think that was where we really lent into it. And it, to be honest, it wasn't difficult to do. It was, you know, we just looked at the historical references and it immediately opened itself up to us. We see so many stories of kind of the Westerner coming in and teaching everyone else how to live their lives and being the kind of savior. And what's great about Shogun is that that is not the case. Yeah. That really isn't, that isn't how it plays out at all. And I, and I yeah. felt that that was not only correct, but super intriguing as well as a new perspective yeah. on it. And Toronaga in particular is such a complicated character to both direct and act because there's so much going on inside and not necessarily things we see. And I, you know, I was just like marveling at how he still kind of indicates that. And we see the wheels in yeah. his head turning, particularly in that first interview scene with Blackthorn, which is just great on so many levels. What were you kind of thinking going into that scene, that first meeting of Blackthorn and Toronaga? I think just making it very first person and also really trying to get inside both their heads that feel what Blackthorn's feeling about it all and that intimidation of this new place and this person and both of these very smart men taking each other in and thinking about what to say next and that all of this is pivotal that yeah. if Blackthorn missteps he will die yeah and I think again I think Cosmo was great at that in that Cosmo deliberately sort of didn't really want to know what was being said to him all the time that worked hard at trying to get his Japanese better as the show went on so that he oh, would wow. try and understand more and more as, as Blackthorn wow. did. I remember when we were in the room that we really started to think about Toronaga and Blackthorn's relationship being a kind of romance mm. of sorts and a very complicated one, one sort of a dance back and forth. How did you kind of work with that relationship between Cosmo and Hiroyuki? Because, you know, as we were talking about, there's a language barrier there. And how did you kind of get that to work? Because it's such an electric moment in that episode. I think that relationship, we talked a lot about that relationship beforehand. And I think they both felt it with each other. I think they are two actors that come in hugely prepared. I mean, everyone did. And I think that in itself, you know, from the very first day of filming, kind of brought a level of respect and engagement from each other that I think does show on screen. 
And also we shot in order. You know, a lot of the time we did those scenes in the castle were some of the last things we shot of that episode one and two block. And so I think when we got there, Blackthorn had already experienced for real a lot of these things. Yeah. You know, and filming was not easy. It was a very rainy, muddy exterior thing. And, you know, he's getting covered in gunk and really having to live it. And I think it was when Cosmo gets to that place, when he gets those warm sets inside, that actually that did have an effect as well. I was very pleased we got to shoot it in order. Is there any scene other than ones we've gotten into already that you had a lot of fun with or that, you know, thought were particularly uh, a meaty? I, I really liked actually into the humor of it. I really liked the scene of Ishido sort of getting armor envy and kind of being jealous. It felt very human that someone discovering that being in power is actually not fun. Being in power is work. Being in power is like a desk job. You're a bureaucrat. And I think Ishido feeling like Toronaga was this rock star and he's this guy stamping documents and doing administration and bogged down in this formality and you know and he's got his armor but he sort of wishes he had slightly better armor and you know I I just felt it felt very true to life. How did you approach Shido as a villain because he doesn't at first glance check a lot of the boxes of somebody that you're rooting against necessarily. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about him is that in many respects, he should be the hero of the story a little bit. And so that was the kind of fascinating thing to take someone who in lots of ways is right. He's not wrong about a lot of the things he's saying and appealing to people, but he's so frustrated that you can't just be saying the right thing. You also need to be the right person to say it. And I think also we really went out of our way to cast someone who felt like they would be a formidable enemy to Toronaga, not sort of an old man who maybe can't quite hack it, who's maybe on his last wind. That I think that was why we got Takahiro, that I think we really felt like he brought this very unusual energy of someone who feels like by rights he should be. Yeah. He should be thought of as great like Toronaga, and yet just kind of falls short. I think that's what makes the narrative so compelling. That's what makes it exciting to direct that these aren't two-dimensional characters that it also has contemporary resonance you know careful who your leaders are careful who we choose we often pick people for the wrong reasons and in fact that's almost the richest thing is that how do people feel at the end of this story about all our characters you know how do you mm-hmm. feel about blackthorn that there are whole moments i think where Blackthorn is just wrong. He's just racist and wrong and and muddle-headed and and pig-headed and stubborn. But we'll love him anyway. Or we'll come yeah. to love him. And I think we love people in spite of their issues, or maybe even because of okay. their issues. That yeah. no one loves someone who's just great. That's all for this week's episode of Shogun, the official podcast. Next week. How will the Osaka court react to the assassination attempt? What will the Catholics do now that the black ship can't set sail? And will Blackthorn ever bathe again? Tune in next week when we discuss episode three of FX's Shogun. You can find a link in our description to episodes one and two of Shogun. And if you want to dive deeper into the world of our story, check out the official Shogun Viewer's Guide. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. 
Be sure to rate, review, and follow Shogun, the official podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Oshida, and I'll see you next week.